Amen. Go ahead and take your seats and be reaching for your Bibles. Great to go from a time of worship like that right into God's Word to hear from Him. We've spent uh, this time expressing our heart uh, to the Lord, and um, His Word is how He's going to communicate His heart uh, to us now. And so we are in Romans chapter 8. Your notes are at hbc.info, and uh, hopefully you're going to follow along here, and we're going to hear from the Lord. We want to start uh, by talking, we're going to talk about hope in this message, but I want to start by talking about uh, false hope. False hope. False hope is shameful. It sets people up for greater grief. Whenever people communicate a false hope, it sets us up for greater grief and disappointment. It, uh, it, it applies immediately, immediate relief. You know, like I get this hope, this false hope. I feel good in the moment, but it increases future pain. A false hope contains falsehoods. It's a lie. Let's call it out for what it is. It's a promise that cannot be fulfilled. False hope has the goal of smoothing out the current crisis without thought to future well-being. It is pragmatic. It is convenient. And it is the easy way out in the moment. Now, Paul um, is raising this topic of hope in chapter 8, but he raised it previously in chapter 5, if you can remember back that far. In Romans 5, 5, Paul talked about having a hope that does not disappoint, does not put to shame, a hope that does not fail us. And he returns to that theme in today's passage, saying in verse 24, in this hope, in this hope of redemption, in this hope of being glorified with him, in this hope of adoption into his family, in this hope, in the gospel hope, we were saved. And in our history, with that kind of as the backdrop, we think about our own history as human beings. We've experienced many times when hope was especially needed. When people were more open, we could say it this way, when people were more hope open to hearing the message of hope, to receiving a message of hope, because everything else around them was failing. And this is what people, I believe, need right now. In fact, I was having a conversation on Thursday night. We're having our uh, latest session of the leadership series, and um, our speaker is Shayla Visser. She's the national director for Alpha Canada, and I was talking to her this past week. We were setting up what we're going to do on Thursday, and as I was talking to her, she's saying, now, Alpha is arguably one of the most successful evangelistic and discipleship ministries of this generation, and, and she's saying, though we've seen so much success in people coming to faith in Christ through, Christ through Alpha, she says, there's been nothing like this year. To people who have never accepted an inv invitation to enter into an Alpha study in the past, people who have refused time and time again are saying yes this year. And that's because people are looking for hope in the midst of a world that is not offering any. This is what people need right now, and the gospel is hope. And the only real hope anyone can ever have is that which is going to take them beyond the struggles of this present world the hardships that we all face and will conduct us all the way into eternity with our God. And that's the hope we see in today's passage. So this is Romans 8, 18 to 30. 
as I'm reading this, you're going to say, I think that verse could be a sermon. I think that verse could be another sermon. I think that, yes, there's a 12-part series in the passage I'm going to read right now. We're going to do it in one this morning. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Amen? Great passage, 12 sermons, one morning together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this incredible passage. And we know there's so much for us here. And I pray your Holy Spirit would work in a miraculous way to teach us all right now. Father, we need this hope. The world around us, this city needs this hope. And I pray, God, that it would be so rich, so abundant in us, that it would spill over and be of benefit to those who do not yet know you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's get after this. We're talking about gospel hope. What does that mean? Gospel hope means, first of all, see this, acceptance of what is. Gospel hope means the acceptance of what is. And when we accept what is, that is not defeatism. It is not pessimism. It is realism. And I want to I camp on this for a moment because... Um, you know, I think that most of us would say that we're not especially fond of pessimists. You know, that person in your life with a glass is always half empty. That person, always negative, always super critical. That person, just really hard to appreciate a person like that in our lives. No one likes the unrelenting pessimist. But to me, more annoying... More annoying than the unrelenting pessimist is the unrelenting optimist. That to me is way more annoying. The person who everything is always sunny, everything is always good, we need to see the positive in everything, 
These are the people who are like, everything is awesome, those people. And listen, even in Legoland, everything was not awesome. But we have these people in our lives, the unrelenting pessimists, the unrelenting optimists. And what we see instead here in the Scripture is we need to be unrelenting realists. We need to see the world exactly as it is because, listen, the unrelenting pessimist does not see the good news of the gospel, and the unrelenting uh, optimist refuses to see that there's bad news that requires the gospel. So we're right here. Tell me realistically what's going on in the world. We need to be realistic about the state of the of the world, the state of civilization, and indeed the state of our individual lives. Yes, we need to work for the betterment of the creation that we live in. Part of our dominion mandate is to care for this creation. So yeah, you know, you want to be a, 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 an optimist about things. You want to be positive and make a change. If you want to save sea turtles, save sea turtles. They're awesome. God made them. If you want to help the poor, help the poor. Yes, Jesus said, the poor you're always going to have with you. You're never going to actually solve the problem. But he also said, if you do these things to the least of my brothers, you're doing it to me. So go help the poor. Fix the world. Work towards that. Be positive in that sense. But always with an eye on eternity. Always with an understanding that we can't fix all of this. Always in our minds the grand plan that God has for a glorious recreation of this world, a new heavens and a new earth described for us in Revelation 21, which comes, by the way, after a, a, a prophesied and inevitable global cataclysmic event that brings everything to a crashing end. That right there is your realistic view of the world. That is your realistic anthropology. That is your realistic earth sciences. And that's why we need hope. Because this world as created by God and then marred by human sin needs divine intervention to be saved. Human intervention is not going to get it done no matter how optimistic you are. We have to accept what is. And to that, Paul says, and this is one of those, this first verse is one of those underline it, memorize it type verses. It should be highlighted in your Bible. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, what an awesome thought. We have to just pause on that verse and let that sink in. Because it's about gaining the right perspective on whatever it is we're facing, either altogether facing as a, as a, as a city, as a, as a province, as a country, as a world, or what I'm individually going through right now. I'm going to gain the right perspective. In fact, if, if you were to look through the Scriptures for the perfect, what's the perfect pandemic verse? Okay, Romans 8.18. It's the perfect pandemic verse. Let me rewrite it for you here. Very simply, for I consider that the sufferings of this pandemic are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
Whatever, whatever, whatever the sufferings of this pandemic are for you, and the list is long, whatever those are, they're not worth comparing to the thing that God is doing and how He's going to bring everything about. And so Paul appeals to our observations about the creation to make his point. Verse 19, he says, for the creation, just think about the creation now, it waits eagerly with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's waiting for the end of the age, which, which he, in essence, he referred to that back in verse 17 in our last message when he was talking about heirs. We're all kind of waiting for this to happen, our future glory. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't want to go through this, but because of him who subjected it in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free. That's what we're anticipating. It will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That's where we live now. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's using this really definitive language here to refer to the state of the earth, the state of the universe, state of the world today. It's chaotic and it's crumbling. And when you think about the fact that when Paul is writing this, he's talking about this decaying universe, the state of it, and you realize he's writing in the first century. Like he's, it's, it's AD 56 when he's writing this letter to Rome. And, and you think now, 2,000 years, has the world gotten better in 2,000 years? Whatever Paul's written, just multiply that by a factor of 100, and you see just how bad the world is today. Things haven't gotten better. The effects of this bondage to corruption that Paul cites here have compounded through the centuries how much worse it is because of the devastation of 2,000 years of warfare. Places in the world irreparably scarred by our wars against one another, by unchecked damage to the environment, by urban sprawl, the gobbling up of prime farmland to build condos the rape of developing world resources, the loss of species, the exploitation of the already disadvantaged, genocide, and growing disparity between rich and poor. The creation, as Paul said, was subjected to futility. That's where we live. That word futility, if you read it there, it might make you think of one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. And that word gets used repeatedly in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it speaks to emptiness and meaninglessness or frustration. In fact, one commentator said this, the frustration, picking up on this word, the frustration of the created order lay in its inability due to human sin to fulfill its intended goal or purpose. The intended goal and purpose of the creation is to glorify God. Human sin has made that extremely difficult for the creation. And that's been playing out since the fall of humanity when sin invaded and corrupted everything. And so we see, we're just trying to get to this place where we accept things as they are, and we see the cosmic universal sense of this, Verse 22, for we know, just by observation, we know that the whole creation, Paul says, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The universe is experiencing painful, 
terrible, traumatic pain. But there's also a very individual and personal sense to that. And that's what he talks about in the next verse. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who are Christians who have this deposit from God on our final redemption, we have this, this pledge by God. And the pledge was, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you. And then when you get to eternity, you get like the full picture of God. But right now, you have the Holy Spirit. It's like a deposit on the final inheritance. You who have the first fruits of the Spirit, notice, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as son, adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So the cosmos and, and the earth, the world around us, they feel the tension of sin in the world, but so do you. So do I. My flesh is being crushed under the weight of sin, of disease, of trauma, of age, of the, of the environmental conditions we live in, of violence. We're all facing that. And even as a believer, this is the state of affairs until God fixes what we broke. And the starting point for gospel hope is access, accepting things as they are. But gospel hope also means, see this next, patience in the waiting. Now, we kind of pass by this thought in verse 23. Paul said, as we, as we wait eagerly, as we wait eagerly for these things to happen, there's both an eagerness there, but there's also the waiting part. Paul dives deeply into this hope that we have in Christ, saying, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. And he explains, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Hope, hope that is seen is false hope. By definition, hope is unseen and as yet unfulfilled. John Piper, this definition I've used many times, hope is a confident expectation and desire for good things in the future. But notice that it's in the future. It's not something you see or have now. And as one other commentator said, why, why would we hope for something that's in plain view? If it's in plain view, you don't even need to hope for it. It's right there. So Paul says, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, so if we're doing the right thing by having a well-placed hope in our lives, if we're doing the right thing, notice what he says, we wait for it with, what's the patient? What's the word? I said the word. Good work, Vanna. Listen, just, we wait for it with patience, okay? Now listen, Paul's mentioning patience because why? It's a problem. Patience is probably not our best thing. Am I just confessing for myself here or for you too? Anybody else here say patience is not your best thing? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a struggle here. Paul mentions it and I don't really like the fact that he did. I'm more, of an, I'm more of an instant gratification, I want it now kind of guy. Does that sound like you a little bit? And, and the problem with, with impatience is that you then miss out on so much, and you're definitely not aligned with the Lord on this. And that's why, you know, if, if you have this, pay, this impatience in you, then you're not really understanding what gospel hope is about. 
In fact, I wrote down kind of some pitfalls that impatience leads to, if you want to write these down. Impatience leads to, first of all, anger or frustration. And, and, and this, the, what we would say is, I'm just so angry with my circumstances. I'm so frustrated with how things are going right now. But if you're a believer, what you're really saying is, you're angry with God and you're frustrated with His choices for you. It's never about the circumstances because we believe that our God is sovereign and that He's selecting all of this for us. He's leading us down a certain path on a certain journey. So just be honest with yourself. If you're frustrated with your circumstances, you're frustrated with God. So impatience leads to anger or frustration. Impatience also leads to taking, secondly, taking matters into my own hands. Oh, you see, now, God's not doing things the way I do them, or He's not doing it on the timeline that I'd like Him to be doing it, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it this way. I'm going to go ahead of Him. Impatience leads to, thirdly, lost effectiveness in the mission, because now my priorities are all messed up. How would I ever expect to properly be representing Christ if I'm not in step with His plan? Impatience, fourthly, leads to missing God's blessings. And again, because I'm doing it my own way, these blessings that God might have for me along the journey, the blessings that God might have for me in the waiting, those are no longer mine. Because again, I've gone out ahead of Him. Here's a fifth one. Impatience leads to lost synergy with God's people. Again, anyone else who's like waiting for God and they're being patient... They're pausing, they're before the Lord, they're intimate with Him, but you're running ahead. Now you're out of sync, not just with God, but with His people. And then finally, obviously, impatience leads to lost intimacy with God. Because again, I'm running ahead of Him, I'm not even with Him anymore. And the bottom line of this, whether I like it or not, as an impatient person, hope waits. Hope is patient with how God is rolling out His plan. And it helps if we understand that gospel hope means, see this next in the notes, reliance on the Spirit. These next three points are all kind of building on each other. If I make a commitment to being patient, it's going to rest mostly in the fact that I can rely on the Holy Spirit in my life. Impatience drives me to depend on myself, but patience drives me to depend on God. And so as a believer living in a world that's, you know, we're living in this world that's groaning under the weight of sin, I need the Holy Spirit to navigate my way through it, and I should feel the world is telling you, be strong, you can make it, you have it in you. But what we should be feeling is weakness. The groaning of this creation and, and the groaning that's on our own shoulders should be making us feel weak in the face of what things are like. And if I don't feel weak, then I might be just a little bit too self-reliant. And the biggest problem with self-reliance is, just turn it over, it has a best before date. Okay, your self-reliance is only going to get you so far, and then it expires. It's not going to work forever. Verse 26, great verse. Look at it line by line here. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Not in our bravado, not in our strength, not in our, look what I can do, God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
And the specific of the Spirit's help is with our praying because nothing communicates reliance on the Spirit more than prayer. See if this has ever been you. Verse 26 continues. Has this ever been you? Because this this is me. This was me this past week like three times. Notice what it says. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. I mean, how many times do, are we just in this place where it's, it's time for prayer and we don't know what to pray? You're stumped with how to pray, especially for certain situations. There's this, this block. I don't know how I should actually pray for this situation. I just think about some examples here. You know, I've got this difficult person in my life. I'm not saying that I have a difficult person in my life right now. Let's just call this a hypothetical situation. But I am a pastor. I do tend to attract difficult people. I don't know why, but that's the way it goes sometimes. So let's say, hypothetically, I have a difficult person in my life. And I want to pray for this person. I know I ought to pray for them. And I'm not sure how I ought to pray for them because part of me wants to pray, Lord, don't get ahead of me, Dave. Lord, take them out by any means possible. Oh, come on, like you haven't prayed that. (laughs) Remove them from my life. Not fussy on means. But then I'm also thinking, God, could you soften their heart? Could you soften my heart? Could we get to a good place? Could something change? And so I'm like, I'm in that moment, and I don't know necessarily how I ought to pray, because I read in the Scriptures that sometimes God takes people out. Like, sometimes that's His preferred means. And who am I to know if that's not His will in this particular situation? So I'm praying, I'm praying, I don't know how I ought to pray. Or, second example, we have a decision in front of us, and we don't know how to, de- we don't know how to make this decision. God, it could be A, it could be B, it could be C. There might even be a D I don't know about, and I'm trying to make a decision here, and I don't know. I just don't know. Or how many times have I I been in a situation as a pastor, and I'm sure you've been in these situations where you're praying for someone who's sick, and you're looking at the situation, you're going, I don't think this person's ever getting better. You're not saying that, but you're thinking it. And now they're saying, hey, would you pray for us? Like, I don't know how to pray. Should I pray for healing? But I'm pretty sure this person isn't going to be healed. I know God could do it. I know he has done it. But I'm not sure if I should in this moment. And would I be communicating a false hope if I'm praying for healing right now? Because I don't feel like that's how this is going. Or do I in the moment pray the prayer that we always pray in these times? God, I pray that you would give this loved one strength and grace in the midst of the situation. How should I pray? See, the thing that I find about this, it's like prayer is hard enough anyway, correct? Prayer is maybe the hardest discipline that we have to practice, but now we're adding in the dimension that sometimes when we're going to do this very difficult discipline, sometimes when we go to do that, we don't even know what we ought to be praying. And that's the challenge. But Paul helps us out here. Verse 26 continues, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And I read that, and I don't even know what that means. 
I don't even know what those groanings are. I don't even know what the Holy Spirit is doing for me. But what I do understand is that if I'm going to demonstrate my reliance on the Lord because I want to have this gospel hope, I know that whatever I'm going to do, the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to at least talk to God about it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to start saying words. I'm going to let whatever's in my heart and my mind come out to the Lord because He's more than willing to hear all of it. God, I want to be honest with you. This difficult person in my life, I want them out. Pray that. Pray that. Then let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Don't worry about the content. Just talk to Him. And as you do that, verse 27, and as you do that, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit takes whatever you say and translates it into the heavenly language and conforms that prayer perfectly to the will of God. And when we have gospel hope, we rely on the Spirit of God in this super specific way. I love that because that leads us to the next point. Finally, we see that gospel hope also means confidence in God's plan. If you have the patience and you're relying on the Holy Spirit to to take those prayers up to the Lord, you can do that because you have confidence in God's plan. And we come to verse 28, and again, we have one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible, and whenever trials come, this is a great verse to remind yourself of God's love and His intention for you. It can be a little uncomfortable when you're quoting it to someone else in the midst of their trouble. It's a little sharp to go to a person and say, hey, you know what? Just don't worry about your trial. God's got it all worked out, you know? God's going to work it all out. And in the moment, you don't really feel that way. But this is a great verse for us to all lock in for ourselves so that we remember it when we go through our difficult season. Check it out. You should have this underlined or highlighted. We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this is a promise to believers that God has your best interest at heart, no matter what you might be seeing or, or experiencing in the moment. This is not a promise of, it's not a promise of prosperity. It's not a promise of material blessing. It's not a promise of automatic healing, like whatever you're going through, God's going to heal that physically. Those things might happen, and God could choose those things, but it's not necessarily those things. This looks much further on and into eternity, and what God is most concerned about here is the development of our Christ-like character. He wants to make us like Jesus, and we're going to see that down in verse 29 in a moment. And we are called according to His purpose, and His purpose is for us. Again, back to verse 17, His purpose for us is to be glorified in Him. To have confidence in a plan, though, you have to know what the plan is, and that's what we're talking about here. So we're in the midst of our difficult season, and God, we we want to trust the fact that He has a plan, but what's the plan? Can I have confidence in this plan? And so we have this purpose of God. The center of God's plan, of course, is redemption. God sent His Son to die in our place so that we could be redeemed. 
And this is how it rolled out. This is what some have called the unbreakable chain of salvation or redemption, the unbreakable chain of salvation. And note the key words as I read through these next couple of verses. For those whom he foreknew, that's the first word, he also predestined, that's the second word, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, that's the third word, and those whom he called, he also justified, that's the fourth word, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, that's number five. And this is the means by which God has redeemed or saved us. So let's look at each of these words. First of all, God foreknew, and it's God doing all of these. God foreknew. Not simply, and this, some people get tripped up here because they're uncomfortable with these first two words, and they look at foreknowledge, and here's what they say about it. Uh, it's, it's, but it's not simply that God looked down through history and saw all the people who were going to decide to be His children and then predestined them. It's not that. There's nothing in the Bible that would lead us to believe that it's that. Because that would still, that would fly in the face of everything else that's written in the book of Romans, for example, because that would still put salvation in our hands as if we still made the decision. And we know that salvation is clearly in God's hands. In fact, when we think about this word for new, for knowledge, the word know, and how that word is used in the Scriptures, it's not simply, we, we hear the word know and we think about a cognitive understanding of something, that it's just knowledge. We just know it. But knowledge in, in the Scriptures, and we have this word know in the Scriptures, it always refers to a close relationship with and affection for. In fact, it speaks to intimacy. To know someone in the way that God knows someone is actually to love them. And this love compelled him to choose them. That's consistent with John 3.16 for sure. And so you could actually write the verse this way, in some respects, to understand it better, those whom he foreloved, those whom he foreloved. The second word is predestined, uh, predestined to choose beforehand, and it's an uncomfortable truth that salvation is by God's choice. And, and the thing that we struggle with here um, is that God would choose us to salvation and, and not choose others, and the, the thing that one thing that helps us sort these two things out is knowing that there is a God perspective that we do not fully grasp. There's a God perspective to salvation, and there's a, there's a down here on ground level perspective to our salvation, and, and foreknowledge and predestination are the God perspective part of this. The human perspective and what we preach is Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we should keep preaching that. And we should still have an understanding that anyone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ can, can choose by calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott said this, and this quote is in your notes, it is not to deny that we decided for Christ and freely, but to affirm that we did so only because He had first decided for us. So yes, we decide for Christ, but He first decided for us. Both of those things are true, and neither of those things is going to be fully reconciled on this side of eternity. So remember, we can do nothing to bring about our own salvation. God predestines us to it. Thirdly, um, called. This is the gospel evangelism, uh, sharing the good news about Jesus part of it. This is the moment a person hears and understands the gospel and responds because the Spirit is prompting or calling him or her to faith. 
And this is where we see our own mission playing a part, uh, calling people to repentance who have been called by God to salvation. Here's a fourth word, justified. And as we saw earlier in the letter, um, in this study, we've talked about justification several times. It refers to God's declaration that we are righteous on the basis of Jesus imputing His righteousness to us. In God's eyes, we're saved. Our sin is atoned for by Jesus' death on the cross. It is forgiveness and more. It is sins removed, as Psalm 103.12 says, our sins removed as far as the east is from the west. We are declared to be righteous. The final word is glorified, and on the day we see our Savior face to face, we'll be given perfect glorified bodies. And the sorrows and the losses and the pain and the death, the groaning that this creation and we ourselves have experienced will be gone forever in the brilliance of His glory as it is shared freely with us. So that's the five-step plan of God. And that plan should instill incredible confidence in us because I want you to notice something else about these five words. They're all stated as completed actions. They're not stated in a future tense as if this is the thing that's going to happen. Jesus sees these, God sees these as completed actions. Not only will God see this process through for us, but because He stands outside of time, they're already completed and done. And that too should instill incredible confidence in us and give us incredible gospel hope. Because the gospel is hope. And if you're a believer, you should be living out this hope every day and letting unbelievers see that they need this hope as well. The world offers nothing but false hope. In fact, earlier in the worship time, we sang a lyric that said, find hope when all the world seems lost. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, this hope is available to you now simply by calling on the name of the Lord and by exercising faith in Jesus Christ. For in this hope, in this hope alone, we are saved. Amen? Amen. Well, you can um, take your Bibles and your notes and just set those aside for now. And if you're at home uh, watching on the live stream uh, or watching this on demand through the week, uh, hopefully you've prepared uh, bread or crackers, juice or wine uh, to have uh, during this time of communion. And if you um, are here in the worship center with us, you received a prepackaged communion set as you came in. And you can peel off that top layer right now and just have the bread Uh, part ready. You'll peel off the second part to get uh, to the juice in just a moment. We receive the bread and the cup right now, thinking about the body of Christ given, thinking about the blood of Christ shed for us. And we should be thinking, even as we've just talked about hope, we should be thinking about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ the exclusivity of the offer of salvation. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles say, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men whereby we may be saved. 
no other name. We also think not only of the exclusivity of Christ, but we think of the simplicity of it all, the simplicity of the gospel message of redemption. It's Jesus' life for mine. Jesus substituting his life for mine to bring me this hope. And so, as we read in the scriptures, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus met with his closest disciples. And he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat it together now. The scriptures also record for us that in the same way, he took the cup and when he had given thanks... He took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink it together now with grateful hearts to our Savior for his sacrifice. Our God and Father, we are so very grateful in this moment to be able to share in this very simple taking of the bread and drinking of the cup. A reminder of the great sacrifice that you made for us in anticipation of that day when we'll see you face to face. Our hope in that moment will be realized. And until then, Father, I pray that we would live out this gospel hope. God, that we would see the world for what it is. God, that we would be patient, waiting on you, confident in the incredible plan that you've put into place, relying on your spirit every step of the way. Thank you for this morning together. Continue your good work in each of our lives to bring us to the place that we are like your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.